to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for modern mutants interested in mindfulness, meditation, awakening, and more. My name is Michael Taft. I'm a mindfulness coach, a meditation teacher, and an author, and I'll be your host on this podcast. This is the second in a series of conversations with my friend and fellow meditation teacher, Kenneth Folk. We introduced Kenneth in the first session, but if you want to learn more about Kenneth, you can do that at kennethfolkdharma.com. In the first session, Kenneth and I discussed what it means to be mindful. In this second program, we look at suffering machines, ways to suspend the necessary conditions for suffering, Sarah Connor and the Terminator, state chasing, getting the cosmic joke, and a whole bunch of other interesting stuff. This is exactly the kind of material I was hoping Kenneth and I would get to in our talks together, and we definitely go there here. One note of warning, if you haven't seen the TV series Westworld, we talk about one of the big reveals at the end of season one, so spoiler alert, don't say I didn't warn you. So here we go with session two entitled The Cosmic Joke. Hey, Kenneth. Good morning, Michael. Hey, so uh, what do you have to talk about today? I have something that I'm very excited about talking today, and it is riffing off of Thomas Metzinger's understanding of what, a, uh, of what it would take for a machine, an artificial intelligence, to suffer. And I know that you know Thomas Metzinger and have spent quality time with him in addition to have studied his work, so... I think this is going to be a fun discussion. It sounds like it. So for those of you who don't know, Thomas Metzinger is a German philosopher at the um, University of Mainz in uh, Germany. Uh, Really amazingly brilliant and fun human being who has written a book called Being No One, which is probably the best text ever conceived about the philosophical and scientific and neurological basis of what it means to have an ego. And uh, he also wrote a much easier to understand book called The Ego Tunnel. So uh, both Kenneth and I have hung out with Thomas quite a bit. And uh, so that's the background. Okay. Now, uh, Metzinger has a, a, a short article on The Edge and the discussion is about thinking machines. Uh, can machines think? Can machines be taught to think? And the subtitle of this particular article is, What If They Could Suffer? And so he sets up the conditions, the necessary conditions for a machine to suffer. And I think that we'll find this is very relevant to us as humans. And so what does he say are the necessary conditions? Okay, there are four. And I'm going to uh, I'm going to riff on Metzinger and make it a little more accessible. With apologies to everyone for that, but I think it'll work. So let's see. We're, we're going to use a, a uh, mnemonic device, and we're going to tie it in to an AI, which is the Terminator. The Terminator in the first movie was uh, coming from the future. Correct me if I'm wrong. To save a woman named Sarah Connor because Sarah Connor was going to give birth sometime in the future to the savior of, of humankind. She comes back to... Oh, I did that wrong. I did that wrong because the Terminator was there, was there to kill Sarah Connor. Yes, that's correct. Got it. Okay, thanks. 
All right, so Connor is is the is the name we're after here. Except we're going to simplify the spelling. It's C O N R Connor, and those those letters are going to stand for each of the four necessary conditions uh, for suffering, beginning with C consciousness. Consciousness is prerequisite to suffering. So, uh, for example, a rock is not conscious and it doesn't suffer, and I when I am deeply anesthetized or, or in deep dreamless sleep at night, don't suffer, I can't suffer. So consciousness is something that we would need to suffer. That's number one, C. The, the next one is, the second one is ownership. Uh, so O, Thomas Metzinger talks about a phenomenal self-model, but the important aspect for our purposes is ownership. I have to be able to own this experience in order to suffer. So uh, an example of this would be, uh, let's see, an example of not suffering and not owning it. I can watch films of battles where people are being shot. And, and there, there's a certain amount of, of vicarious pain in that through empathy. But the truth is it doesn't hurt nearly as much as I would imagine it would be like to actually be shot. I don't own that suffering. It's somebody else's suffering. It's somebody else's. So if I can conceive of myself as an entity who can either own or not own the suffering, I have a phenomenal self-model. And that's a necessary precondition. Got it. So we have C and O. Consciousness and ownership. Now N, the third letter in Connor, is negative valence, according to Metzinger. So what does that mean? Well, it means something that feels bad or hurts. Yeah, it feels bad. When I'm eating ice cream, it feels good. So you, you could you could say there isn't any suffering in that. I'm just feeling good. Now, by the way, we're not talking about suffering as as a translation of dukkha right now. Dukkha has a very specific definition. We're talking about plain old ordinary English language use of the word suffering. Got it. So it has to feel bad to suffer. If you if you can imagine a creature a being that only feels good all the time, well, it doesn't suffer. And this is, this is, by the way, covered in, in Buddhism uh, with the stories about, about gods, devas and brahmas, that live their entire lives with pleasure. So there's no suffering there. So that's in. And we, we don't find uh, animals that don't uh, have negative valence on the earth because any such creatures long ago died out. Uh, we need to have negative valence, bad feelings in order to survive. That makes sense. And just can you say a little more about why that's so important to survive as a creature? Well, it's really interesting. You know, pain is, a, let's just talk about pain. Pain is a, a signal that something is amiss. And it's a really important signal to facilitate survival of an organism. So you want to know, for example, if you've accidentally punctured your leg and the blood is running out. And if it didn't hurt, you could be in a situation where you didn't even know that was happening. I remember one time as a kid having shots from the dentist in my mouth, and my mouth was so numb that I came home from the dentist, I walked home, and my mom was like, ah, she's, you know, yelling. And it turned out that I had chewed my lip to the point of like bleeding because I just didn't know it hurt. So animals need this signal 
that something's amiss. And if you don't have it, it's quite dangerous. In fact, uh, without going too far into it, there's a genetic condition for certain humans that uh, literally, physiologically are incapable of feeling pain. And uh, they rarely live past childhood, early childhood, because it's just too easy to break your bones and cut yourself. And it turns out they can't even sweat because the signal of overheating is a kind of slight discomfort. So it's really important in evolution. That's fantastic. So so here we have, on the one hand, negative valence as something that is required for living creatures to even survive. And on the other hand, it's one of the four necessary conditions for suffering. This is wonderful. Okay. Now, uh, we've got C, which is consciousness. We have O, ownership, and we have N, negative valence, uh, which means something that feels bad. And then the, the fourth and final condition is R. And R, we're going to call this realness. In Thomas Metzinger's language, in, in philosophical language, this he calls this transparency. But that's a technical term that's not going to work very well for a lay audience. It's realness. This has to feel real to me. You can contrast the feeling of realness with unreality. For example, sometimes in a dream, I think most of us have had an experience in a dream where something is happening that would normally be a very bad thing. You're being, um, I don't know, chewed up by monsters, but it doesn't actually hurt. It doesn't feel real. And there's some little part of you saying, oh, this is odd. They actually be amused by it. Oh, this is interesting. Here, this body seems to be uh, compromised or, or being um, punished in some way, and yet I don't feel bad. So that's a, a situation where things don't feel real. In order to suffer, we have to take at face value that that something is real uh, in order to to suffer about it. And and this happens to us all the time. I can talk about this as being unreal. Um, in some intellectual way, but the truth is it feels like it's real. It feels like I'm sitting in this chair. I can feel this body. I can feel the, the, the parts of it that are pleasant and, and unpleasant. It feels real. And, and if it does, I can suffer. So we have to have all four of those things. We have to have, uh, we have to have Connor. We have to have C, which is consciousness, O, ownership, N, negative valence, and R, realness. And from here, after I I give you a chance to comment on this, Michael, I want to walk back through it and talk about interventions for suffering based on suspending one of those at a time. Yeah, that's the first thing that occurs to me is uh, in this formulation is that if you need all four of them, it's interesting to begin to speculate which one of those you can suspend. Presumably, if they're all necessary, you only need to suspend or intervene with one of them, and uh, suddenly the suffering stops. And just an example that comes to mind right away is the first one, consciousness. So I think we've all had the experience of um, some kind of uh, emotional suffering or even physical suffering that we're enduring and it's very unpleasant and 
then we go to sleep. And while we're asleep, especially in deep sleep, let's just say that's total unconsciousness, you're just not aware that there's any suffering, right? It's just the bliss, the oblivion of sleep wipes out any sense that during that time you were a suffering being. So right away that leaps to mind. Yes, that's perfect. That's exactly where this goes. So if we say uh, one at a time we're going to step through and we're going to say, how could we suspend just one at a time of these necessary conditions for suffering? Because that's all it would take in any moment that one of these four things, C-O-N-R, is suspended, there will by definition be no suffering. And as you say, that the example that all of us can easily relate to is almost every night going to sleep. And for some part of that sleeping, uh, you're not dreaming, you're not conscious in any way, you're out like a rock. And if you never woke up, you wouldn't know the difference. That's right. So suffering is certainly suspended in that moment by this definition of suffering. And interestingly, various contemplative uh, traditions teach you to train the mind in, in various ways to achieve unconsciousness, as odd as that may seem to some. I would argue that in, in uh, Theravada Buddhism, uh, one of the main interpretations of nirvana, or nibbana in Pali, is out like a light, complete unconsciousness. You have exactly the same consciousness as a rock, which is to say none, and there is no suffering in that situation. That's right. And out like a light is even the literal translation of nibbana. And I would also add in that the Hindu concept of nirvikalp is something along the same lines, some kind of total blackout, at least for a moment. Yes. And in the Mahasi tradition of Burmese Theravada Buddhism, they teach you to access a blackout. They equate that with Nibbana. They say that is Nibbana or Nirvana. And they call it cessation. That's one another way that another thing that's called or uh, Niroda. And it's, it's a highly revered condition. I'm hesitating to call it a state because I imagine that might require someone to have that state. And here we just have non-experience. But we could say that the, um, it's a state of the organism. Okay. Yes. It's a state of the organism of complete and utter unconsciousness. Now, this leads into a really interesting discussion about nirvana and about popular ideas of what nirvana is, and I'm going to return to the rest of the conditions for suffering in a minute. But let's take a little side trip here and talk about nirvana. Yeah, let's talk about nirvana. And remember, for uh, those who don't know, that nirvana is the Sanskrit way of saying nibbana. So they're identical terms. Okay, yes. Yeah. So, so nirvana or nibbana, uh, it's almost universally misunderstood as something I'm going to like. It's heaven. It's heaven. So those of us who are immersed in, in Christian culture will naturally superimpose our ideas of heaven onto nirvana. And I would contend that it's not just Christian culture that does that, but even popular Asian Buddhist culture seems to feel that 
Nibbana or Nirvana is a nice place. Right. And this is uh, surprisingly hard to counter. If someone has that, that idea, you can tell them, well, no, I'm pretty sure that's not what's meant by the word Nirvana. Nirvana is lights out. And they, and, and they will naturally then think, oh, well, lights out in some way that, well, I'm not really there, but some essence that is the real essence of me is there and liking it. There's an awareness of how wonderful the blanked outness is or something like that. Right. There's an awareness. There's Maybe there's some union with Brahman or union with Godhead that is uh, somehow aware of how wonderful it is that I blanked out. But that, that isn't what it means. It means you're just as out as you are uh, when you go to sleep at night and don't dream. Uh, and in fact, there's a really cool story that Saida Upandita tells in his book, In This Very Life, about the sleeping millionaire, which illustrates this really well. Tell us that story, Kenneth. Okay. So the sleeping millionaire, uh, you imagine this guy, let's call him a billionaire because millionaires are, are no big deal nowadays. So the sleeping billionaire. Presumably this billionaire invested early in Bitcoin. <laughs> yes. And now he's cashed in. So at the beginning of the, of, the, uh, of the story, he instructs his servants to prepare a great feast and, uh, and invite all of his, his friends over for, for dinner. And then the, the billionaire goes up to his room and takes a nap. Now, while the billionaire is sleeping, uh, the servants prepare the, this wonderful meal with all the billionaire's favorite foods and invite all of his friends over. And at some point, the the main servant comes up, uh, wakes up the sleeping billionaire, and says, it's time. We've prepared your favorite foods, and all your favorite friends are here. What do you imagine the billionaire's reaction is upon being woken up? Great. Well, actually, no. The billionaire's reaction is, how dare you wake me up? I was completely blissfully asleep, utterly out like a light. He didn't like being awoken from his deep sleep. He didn't. And, and I think we can all relate to that. We, we don't like it. It's so amazingly good to not be conscious. And that, that seems counterintuitive unless you actually feel your way into it and realize that we all have that experience. It doesn't matter how great it is, what's about to happen when you wake up. It's almost always, oh, God, I'm awake again. Yes, I'm a big fan of naps. And even in a short nap, I go into 100% blackout unconsciousness. And it's really one of my favorite moments of the day, I have to say. Yes. Okay, so we've pretty well fleshed out the suspending, at least temporarily, the first condition for suffering, which is consciousness. If you're not conscious, you don't suffer. Don't you think it's interesting how in so many traditions this condition is revered, whereas actually you're kind of just falling asleep? I think it's, it's a tremendous joke on all of us that that is the case. A friend of mine uh, does it as a sort of dorsal dive during yoga, where he can go into complete blackout for moments during yoga, he's having actual cessations while he's doing, you know, big ones while he's doing his practice. And he's like, you know, I, it's not really that different than falling asleep <laughs> or passing out. 
it's pretty cool because because you have all you have these uh, contemplative traditions revering this state, and everybody, uh, I, I think, just about anybody who has cultivated this appreciates it very much. And yet, it's as mundane as falling asleep. And in fact, it's what most modern people, I think, assume will happen when we die. It'll just be done. Lights out, no more consciousness. And in that sense, maybe the Buddha was perfectly correct. Yeah. Interesting that one way of interpreting the stories is that the Buddha was so concerned that we were going to be reborn innumerable times that one had to train the mind in a certain way in order to prevent that from happening. The worst thing that was going to happen is that you were going to be reborn again and again. So what you really wanted to do was lights out forever, pari nibbana. Yeah, and it's interesting to speculate, and this is complete speculation, but that perhaps he understood quite well that there was no such thing in reincarnation, and this was just a really nice way of making that a good thing for people to understand. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a fantastic way of thinking of it, and it would resolve one of the real problems with understanding early Buddhism, which is why on earth would somebody as obviously um, intelligent and insightful as the Buddha be so superstitious when it's, it's clearly pure speculation that there might be something on the other side of death? And just as a kind of coda, I know we want to move on to the O, but I will say that just because uh, Niroda or cessation is related to deep sleep or, quote, is just falling asleep, doesn't mean it's useless as a as a awakening technique. It can, in fact, be highly useful. Wow! Yes, it can be highly useful. It can be very empowering to have the ability to suspend suffering uh, as an intervention. If if I'm really suffering with anxiety or despair or physical pain, to just be able to turn that switch off. Amazing. And presumably to uh, watch consciousness slowly reboot on the other side of that in a very specific and detailed way helps to understand the construction of consciousness. There's several possible really important applications. I don't think people were completely off base about this. Nice. Okay, so we've done C, which is consciousness, and we move on to O, the second letter in C-O-N-R, Connor. And O uh, in our system is ownership. So how would we suspend ownership? Are there practices that are already being taught and, and are traditionally taught in contemplative traditions to suspend this impression that this is happening to me? Yeah, that seems like a, a leverage point in many practices. What comes to mind first is is the Who Am I practice that we find in Advaita Vedanta. It was Ramana Maharshi's favorite practice, Who Am I? Nisargadatta Maharaj, Who Am I? And uh, it's very big in some schools of, of Zen. Who am I? Once I ask the question, to whom is this happening? Well, there it is. Ownership. Am I the one? who owns this pain, this negative valence. I would contend uh, that any practice that points towards anatta at all is suspending ownership in one way or another. 
deconstructing your ego, even in Vipassana, would have a very similar effect. Nice. Okay. Anatta being not self. And uh, the Bhagavad Gita, also the sort of, quote, Bible of Hinduism, uh, harps on this point again and again. The whole secret of having a good life, of not suffering, is to let go of the sense of doership. It says it repeats that over and over again. So there are really a lot of schools of thought or religious traditions that are trying to get a crowbar in there and pry open this sense of ownership. Nice. Okay. You mentioned the sense of doership, which, which is intimately related to the sense of ownership. I own this experience, therefore I am the doer. I am the one who's doing this. So, so agency, doership, and ownership. With ownership, our intervention is to call into question or see through the assumption that I'm the one who's doing it. And interestingly, even as a reflection, I think it works remarkably well to ask, well, is this happening to me or am I just mistaken about it? And, and I find that when I do that, I kind of confuse myself for a moment enough that I can't really get it together to suffer very much, if at all, in that moment. Because I don't know the answer to that. I mean, is this happening to me? Am I the one who knows about this? Not necessarily. I'm confused. That's right. And there's also the method of noticing your connection to everything, like it's all happening to everything. Uh, has a similar effect because it becomes, in a strange way, not yours. Ownership is suspended with this... Um, I'm as much the tree over there as this person here, and the tree over there certainly isn't feeling this. Yes, yeah, yeah. This whole landscape of experience is not happening just to me or, or to me. Okay, so let's move on to the third letter in Connor, C-O-N-R. Third letter is N, and it stands for negative valence, which means something that feels bad. So how do traditional or non-traditional practices cope with the bad feeling? How do we suspend negative valence? I think this is the one that you would probably imagine is the hardest to work with. At least I would. Like, well, something has to feel bad at some point. And yet, it's interesting that it's not that hard. For example, to get really clear about a sensation at a very high resolution and low level of processing in the brain where you're, it hasn't quite been interpreted yet. And to, again, as to use your term, sort of confuse yourself what kind of feeling it is exactly. So you know there's a feeling there, but at a low enough level of processing, it's not clear whether it's a pleasant or unpleasant feeling. Right. So, so one way of suspending, uh, and we're really talking about momentarily suspending these things. We're not, we haven't yet gotten into the question of whether one can permanently suspend these conditions, uh, with the possible exception of consciousness, where we know that if you die, there's a, there's a reasonable case to be made that you'll never have experience again. One can only hope. One can, one can only hope. Although, 
we should come back, circle back to this at some point too, because for some people that's terrifying. How dare you suggest that I will never have experience after I die? But let's bookmark that one. To me, it's an obvious solution to all problems, but... <laughs> I, I totally agree, and which is why it's so odd for me to find that people react to it violently. Yeah, it, it'll be fun to uh, revisit that, yeah. Yeah. All right, so what comes to mind uh, for me, first because of my training in, in Burmese Theravada Buddhism, is, that, is jhana, is, is the deliberate cultivation of altered states through concentration, to be able to put oneself in a in a very pure state of pleasure and with, in fact, several states, of four in some systems, eight in some systems, in my system, 13, but we can draw these lines wherever we want. And to be able to deliberately access these states of pure pleasure, each of which has its own characteristic flavor. It's very hard to do, as you pointed out. This is one of the harder things to do. It takes a great deal of training and, and mastery and, and, and arguably um, talent to be able to do it at all. But if you can, you can enter a very pleasant state and temporarily suspend negative valence. There's no negative valence because there's only positive valence. It just feels good for the duration of the altered state. Now, I think it's fascinating that this is, con this is considered to be kind of the, the, the weakest of, of the four in many spiritual traditions, because it only lasts as long as it lasts, and then you're right back to where you were, and possibly worse off, because now you have to you have kind of a hangover from having used up all the good stuff. Yeah, there's um, a natural limit to how long you can be sitting doing your jhana meditation. They tend to be kind of fragile. It's not like you can walk around um, shopping at Whole Foods in your seventh jhana state. So it's a kind of a hothouse flower sort of phenomena. And you come out of the jhana and life sucks just as much as it did before, or maybe worse, because now you've got something to even more wonderful to compare its badness to. Wow, great point, it, right? And I like the I like the uh, the image. It's kind of a hot house flower intervention, very fragile, as you say. And this comparison aspect, man, I never even knew how much my life sucked until I experienced jhana, and now I know how how what it's like to be a god, and I can't sustain myself as a god metaphorically, and so now I feel even worse than before. And this, to me, is an example of pointing um, attention away, right? We could say that probably during jhana, there's suffering in your body, but your concentration is so cultivated that you're pointing it away very effectively from anything that hurts. Um, so there's this pointing away strategy. And the one that um, I was mentioning a moment ago of kind of going into the micro level of the sensation is a pointing in strategy. And it has, interestingly, a similar effect. It feels a little different, and it's not really jhana-based. It's more um, vipassana-based. I learned a lot of, of, of this uh, through Shinzen Young, who is extremely into meditating in this way uh, to overcome pain. And it's interesting, you know, sort of going into the sensation so deeply that it's unclear 
what it is except that it's some kind of sensation activity. Mm. And that's interesting. That's uh, easier to do walking around in the world. It's a little more robust. Mm-hmm. Okay, and it also could be a good segue into our fourth necessary precondition for suffering, as represented by R in C-O-N-R, Connor. Realness. Realness. One very effective intervention for realness is to look uh, at one's own experience so profoundly that everything seems to be in flux. This is just all swirling around mental and, and physical phenomena. Realness doesn't seem to get any any traction here. It's I don't know if it's real or it's not real. It's just stuff swirling around. And, and this is uh, one of my favorite practices and one of my favorite interventions for suffering and one of my favorite understandings of what uh, awakeness can be. Which, by the way, last time you and I talked, Michael, you took up the banner as what awakeness is, seeing that things are dissolving, swirling, flying around. I like to say, I feel like weather. This feels like weather, and even this uh, weather pattern, uh, just stuff moving around. That's exactly right. And it, just like you, this is one of my favorite practices, and it just kind of arises continuously, right? A kind of subversion of the sense of anything being a thing, and instead an arising direct sense that everything is just some kind of wave pattern. It's just 3D wave patterns moving and, as you say, swirling. And it does feel very tumultuous in in a sense. You know, it's all moving in a bunch of directions, all waves of various lengths and so on. So that word you're using, swirling, really captures it nicely. And you said the subversion of anything being a thing. I think that's that's fantastic. Because if there's no thing to be found here, realness doesn't much apply. That's right. All right. So now we have uh, we have all four of our necessary preconditions for uh, for suffering. Riffing off of Thomas Metzinger, we have Connor C O N R consciousness ownership, negative valence, and realness. And we've we've pointed out that there are interventions in many different contemplative traditions that directly target usually one of these at a time. And this brings me to what I think is a very interesting question, which is something we touched on last last time we talked as well, which is, well, what is enlightenment? Is there an enlightenment? Is there is there one right way to be enlightened that would be akin to metaphorically sticking your fingers into the light socket of reality and merging, okay, I got it now, I'm directly tuned in, to the universe, and that's what enlightenment is. Well, I think that is a ridiculous idea. I think it's ridiculous to think that there is... Uh, I want my money back. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. Uh, I think most of us at some point in our spiritual life will become interested in that idea, and a lot of us will become completely obsessed with that idea of sticking one's fingers in the light socket of reality and getting a direct download. But there are some serious problems with that. Uh, 
For one thing, we cannot get outside of our experience to evaluate it objectively. So just because I have the sensation, just because I have this feeling of of certitude, um, self-validation is, is a way this has been talked about. Yeah, no, no potential conflicts there. Yes, <laughs> right, no potential conflicts there in this completely um, absurd, conflicting idea. Um, since my, my experience of self-validation is itself an experience, it, we can ask, well, why would I privilege the feeling of self-validation over everything else? Now, sometimes you'll hear a teacher, a spiritual teacher say, if you know this in your bones more deeply than you've ever known anything else in your life, that's what you go with. And I say, get out of here. That's just an experience. The experience of self, self-validation doesn't get to be the one experience that's true, any truer than any other. They're all experiences. So, so my contention is that while it's possible, of course, that there is a force of, of the universe that is the correct thing that you can plug your fingers into the light socket of and download directly, we wouldn't know it if we stumbled across it because our only way of evaluating that is itself an experience, uh, the feeling of self-validation or certitude. Or presumably, if it was what it says it is on the box, you could validate it externally via powers and uh, healing and all these demonstrations of your new control over the universe. Uh, you know, sort of a third-person version. And, um, of course, that gets even stickier, but I would say there is not that much evidence that that's going on for anyone. <laughs> I think that's really fun because, on the one hand, there isn't very much evidence that that's going on, which is weird. You know, you'd think there kind of ought to be even as part of the joke that's, that the evil demon is playing upon us in, in Descartes' meditation. But even if it were happening that way, we, we would still say, yeah, but what if I'm a brain in a vat? What if, what if this is the matrix and everything that I think is happening is actually being downloaded to me to fool me? That's right. Or, you know, this is all running on a hypervisor on a substrate somewhere. You know, reality is a computer simulation, uh, same thing. You just couldn't, you can't know. Yes. And as long as we're here, we might as well tie in Westworld. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> All right. So Westworld was such, was, was such a great show. Uh, for those of you listening a, a thousand years from now, it, it was, a, it was a, a show on a popular cable network uh, this year, last year, um, a series of, of uh, episodes. It was about robots whose function was to be beaten and raped by humans who paid a lot of money for the privilege. And at some point, these robots, these, these intelligent robots, became so sophisticated that they gained uh, self-consciousness and they started to ask questions uh, like, um, well, what is the meaning of life? Uh, what, is, what is freedom? Why should I submit to being beaten and raped by these humans? And in the final episode, this all comes together in a very Buddhist theme, which I'm sure was not a coincidence, not an accident. There's a character who is a robot in the show, 
Her name is Maeve, and she is the, the, the madam at a, at a bar in Westworld. And just like all the other robots, she's there to be abused um, by design. But she becomes self-conscious, and she starts remembering all the times that she has gone through this. She's been abused, and she's been killed, and she's been brought back to life and goes through all of it again. And now she remembers this, and she's tired of it. And she decides, I'm getting out of here. Now I understand that Westworld is a theme park, the Disneyland of rape, and I don't want to be in it anymore. So she plans her escape. And as she's escaping, she has to interact with, with, with lots of robots and humans in order to do this. And she talks with some of them. And one of the people... I'll say, that she talks to, uh, looks at her, uh, at the parameters of, of who Maeve the robot is on his little um, tablet pad. And he says, oh, wait a minute, you were programmed to do this. It says right here, uh, you're going to attempt to escape, and you're even going to make it as far as the train station that would take you out of Westworld into the greater world outside. And Maeve, she pauses for a moment. She's stunned by this. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Sorry, don't even listen to this if you haven't seen the show. <laughs> and um, she says, bullshit. I'm, the one. I'm in charge of my destiny. I am conscious and um, I'm, I can't accept that. I've decided to escape and I will. Well. As it happens, in the final scene of the movie, of the show, Maeve is on the train. It's just about to leave to take her out of Westworld. And she remembers her supposed daughter. This is all part of her programming. And she knows it. She knows that that her long-lost daughter is a fiction that was programmed into her memory. And yet she feels such sentimental longing to be reunited with her daughter that she gets off the train and goes back into Westworld just as she was programmed to do. There was no way she could override her programming. She couldn't get outside of experience to evaluate it. She's in it. And this is all of us. We're in it. Intense. I haven't seen the show, but it sounds uh, very worth watching. Sorry, I, I just ruined this for you and everyone else. Thank you, Kenneth. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put a spoiler alert yes. in the show notes. So this actually brings us to what I believe is the reasonable conclusion about awakening, enlightenment. I, I use those words um, synonymously for everybody who's wondering. To me, awakening, that's a Buddhist way of saying um, enlightenment, which is actually not a Buddhist idea. But I'm talking about basically the same thing. I'm asking, is there something we can reasonably talk about as awakening, enlightenment? I say yes, but it's not a single thing. For it to be really most useful to us, we can think of it as something like interventions against suffering. And there isn't just one. We've talked about four major categories of interventions, each of which counters one of Metzinger's four necessary preconditions for suffering. So we're talking about something that to me is much more exciting than plugging one's fingers into the light socket of God, which I think is bullshit, so I can't be excited about it anymore. But there is something we can do. Yes. 
And what's interesting is that there's a um, wide variety of interventions for each of those four categories. Yes. And then there's even the mix and match version where some interventions are touching more than one category. Or my favorite is, you know, once you've learned to intervene successfully in several of these, you can get sometimes much more powerful effect or much easier to maintain continuously because you're kind of switching between modalities slightly. Interesting, right? So by cross-training, we come up with a more robust kind of contemplative excellence than if we had insisted on just one of those uh, interventions. And also, I would argue that we get less confused. That's right. And uh, this to me is extremely fascinating. And it's something that tends to distinguish kind of I don't know how to put it, like early awakeners from later awakeners or more mature, more seasoned awakeners is how many of these interventions they are conversant in. That's an interesting way of thinking about it. I mean, a purist in one of these intervention categories would say, no, you're wrong, Michael, because there there really is one right way to do it. And it's the way I do it, coincidentally. And everyone else in the world is a failed version of me, <laughs> of course. Now, I, I personally, well, that's clearly true. <laughs> I, I personally find that to be, um, you know, stupid to the point of being offensive. But there are people, actually even people I admire, who, who seem to believe that sort of thing. But I agree with you um, that cross-training is a better way to go. I think it not only makes better sense it achieves a more robust kind of uh, of awakening that's more useful. It's more useful, and I, I'm really focused on this robust aspect. It's, again, um, countering the hothouse flower effect where you can only feel relief from suffering in your perfectly quiet meditation room when everything's the right temperature and you've been practicing in there for a couple weeks that just doesn't seem that useful to me as much as I've done it. And it's real fascinating. There's always the moment you come out of the retreat or come out of the meditation room and you're back in life. And what are you going to do now? It's um, so disappointing to see how non-robust so many of the interventions can be. Ain't it the truth? And and it, for some reason, it always seems to be a surprise when you <laughs> <laughs> your latest hot hot house flower intervention fades. Yeah, and I mean, again, that's not to say those aren't worth doing or not interesting. I mean, it's certainly to me, you know, been a lifelong fascination and practice to do such stuff, but. Again, it becomes more interesting over time to see what can handle vicissitudes of daily life. Mm, yes. And, and you know, this brings us around to a theme that we, we uh, touched on last week as well, which is yet another way to frame what awakening might be. And that is what I call getting the joke. Now, getting the joke isn't quite the same as any of the four interventions we've talked about so far. Yeah, this is the cosmic giggle, as Robert Anton Wilson would have called it. All right, so let's see. Uh, in order to, to talk about what it would be to get the joke, I want to talk about the, the best and the worst 
meditation students in history. <laughs> All right. So the, the, the very best student in history was a guy named Bahia in the suttas, in the Buddhist uh, texts. And Bahia was a, he was a wandering renunciate. His name means the guy who chews on bark or something like that. So he was, he was one of these guys that kind of wanders around crazy guy. And at some point, it occurred to him to wonder, am I an arahat? Am I uh, one of these people who completely understands what there is to understand? So Bahia asks a passing god, a dewa, am I an arahat? And the dewa tells him very, uh, very straightforwardly, no, Bahia, not only are you not an arahat, you haven't even begun the, the process. Of, you haven't even entered the path of becoming enlightened, of awakened. And Bahia said, well, then who can I talk to about it um, to learn? And the, the deva, the dewa says, well, you should go talk to this, um, this world-honored one, the Buddha. So Bahia wanders off and finds the Buddha and just happens to, uh, to catch the Buddha on his way into the village for, to collect alms for the morning. Uh, and Bahia says, will you please instruct me? And the Buddha says, no, this is not a good time. I'm on my way to alms rounds. I'll talk to you later. But Bahia persists and he says, no, I, I can't wait until later. I don't even, we don't know what's in the future. I might not live through the day. I and mean, you might not live through the day. You need to tell me now. Bahia had a highly refined sense of impermanence. Yes, he did. He finally pesters the Buddha enough that the Buddha uh, caves in. He says, all right, I'll give you a quick and dirty teaching. We don't have much time. So the Buddha says something like, in the seeing, there is only the seen. In the hearing, there is only the heard. In the uh, smelling, there's only the smelling and so on. You're referring back to no one. Now, Bahia, who turns out to be the best student in the entire world of, in the history of the world, says, oh, okay, got it. Instant contact with no self. He totally gets the joke. If this is true, this would be an, an indication that this understanding of, of awakening hasn't very much to do with training. It has to do with just getting something, just letting go of a, of a misconception that's so sticky that almost everybody cannot let go of it. But Bahia could. So he gets it. And coincidentally or not, Bahia does die that day. <laughs> Not only the best student, but the unluckiest student. <laughs> <laughs> With the best timing. He, he gets gored by a cow uh, protecting her calf. I hate when that happens. <laughs> it's a bad day. He dies. And, and when the Buddha finds out about it, he instructs his monks, the, the other arahats, to bury Bahia with, with special honors and, uh, and remember him as one of their own, one of their peers. In other words, an arahat. So the Buddha certifies this guy as having been fully awakened at the same level as, as the Buddha and, and, and all of these other arahats. Thus, um, giving the cosmic joke the rubber stamp of real awakening. <laughs> Rubber stamp, so that you get the, the lapel pin of the rubber stamp of the cosmic <laughs> joke by the Buddha himself. 
All right. Now, we, let's contrast the very best student ever, which was Bahia, with the worst. The worst student ever in the history of mankind was the Buddha. How do we know this is true? Because the Buddha... The Jataka tales. Well, we know, even if we don't consider all those other lifetimes that, that, that the Buddha is said to have learned in the Jataka tales, if, even if we only consider the, the one lifetime in which the Buddha is said to have become awakened, he found a teacher to teach him jhana, to teach him to access alter, altered states. And the Buddha mastered these altered states uh, fairly quickly to a level of mastery even higher than his teacher, at which point the Buddhist said, oh, well, I thought that I thought I was supposed to get relieved of suffering from this, but, but I haven't. Every time I come out of my jhana, I suffer again. So this isn't good enough. So the Buddha left that teacher and he found another teacher who, who had even more lofty altered states. Uh, the Buddha spent some years doing that, mastered those states better than anybody, so the Buddha is state-chasing this whole time. He's not getting the joke. He's, he's becoming a meditation master instead of getting the joke. The point I'm making here is that the state-chasing, becoming a med meditation master, is for people who are too dense, like me, by the way, to get the joke early on. I, I would never consider myself to be one of those people. <laughs> Neither of us, Kenneth, have done that at all. You know? Neither of us have ever spent years of our lives chasing Only years. mastery, <laughs> thinking, decades, believing that we were going to somehow get the right state or understand the right die. I don't know what the hell we thought. So, but, but notice that at any point along the way, the Buddha could have wised up. He could have said, Oh, I get the joke now. He could have been like Bahia. He could have gotten the joke immediately. Or he could have at any point. But years and years go by, he doesn't get the joke. Until finally, he's mastered every every state that anybody within within walking distance or, or, or a cart, uh, ox cart distance uh, has to teach him. It's all, it's all a bust. Finally, the Buddha becomes so disillusioned that he gives up on all that crap and he sits down under a tree and says to heck with it and he gets the joke. Worst student in the world. And so we have the best student in the world, the worst student in the world, but they do come to the same realization of the cosmic joke. So just for the really dense among us, um, including myself, can you unpack the cosmic joke? Okay, the cosmic joke would be, let's see, if I say I'm going to get awakened, I'm going to become enlightened in the future, uh, that would be the opposite of getting the joke. So that's saying whatever's happening now isn't, it isn't good enough. It's not this. I, you know, I don't know what enlightenment is, but it damn sure isn't this. Well, and you know, that seems in a way quite reasonable, like enlightenment is suspension of suffering. I'm suffering right now, so it must not be this. I mean, that doesn't seem that unreasonable. Hence the difficulty we all seem to have with it. And yet, if I think about it from another point of view, what could it possibly be other than this? 
and and if I insist that that enlightenment it has to be something in the future, something I'm going to get and own later, I'm missing the only opportunity that I could possibly ever have to be awake, which is now. Good. And so here we are in our moment, our now moment, our suffering now moment. And I'm still, okay, I'm in the now. I've got my, I'm aware that that's my opportunity. So what next? Well, one thing we can do is reflect on it. We can say, well, what next? I don't know. But nonetheless, this, this is it. This must be it because there isn't anything else. And we can notice the resistance that comes up. This is a very unwelcome idea. Yeah, well, this arising sucks. This sucks. I cannot acknowledge that this is, this is it. Because it is going to have to be good. It's going to have to be luminous. It's going to have to glow. It's going to have to suspend my suffering. I'm going to like it. And this isn't it. That's the cosmic joke, because it could never be anything other than this. So there's a way that um, that joke or that description of the joke can come off feeling like kind of cynical and um, sort of mind fucky. Like, haha, we told you you would lose your suffering, you'd be free from suffering. But really, come on, it could never be different than this. And just laugh that you ever thought you had a chance. Yeah. Right. It can, it can have that flavor. And yet I know that's not what you're saying exactly. So can, can we go a little further into that? All right. So let me talk around it some more. Uh, a friend of mine sent me an image the other day of a painting by Thich Nhat Hanh. And it was one of those circles that people paint. An Enzo. An Enzo. And inside that Enzo circle was written in cursive, this is it. All right. So so we can, I think all of us can kind of appreciate the beauty of that. This is it. Because we've, we've heard that before. And, and well, there's some, it seems kind of, kind of makes sense. But, but what I like to do is imagine that in parentheses under this is it, it says, but only if you're having a non-dual experience. <laughs> <laughs> or but only if you're not suffering so there you have it you're the there's this brilliant zen masters this is it and now we've appended something to that well actually only if you're not suffering then that's only when it's really it yeah 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 so we have the qualified this is it that we can all see that that's so ridiculous this is either it or it isn't <laughs> you know is this it or not? It, it brings us back to the question, is this it or not? If if someone is um, uh, having a present moment that's a present moment of tremendous difficulty and suffering, where does the whole Connor idea uh, that there's all these interventions they could do in that moment to relieve the suffering come in? Like, If it really comes down to cosmic joke, this is it, does that somehow negate all that other stuff we just unpacked? Not to me, because because if you're not Bahia, you know, if you're dumb, dense, bad student like me, or you, Michael, or like the Buddha, you're going to have to go with Connor. 
As long as you keep comparing me to the Buddha, we can keep having these talks. <laughs> as and unless until we can be like Bahia, we're going to do the consolation prize of Connor, the interventions, and as well we should. We don't have to be. Um, we don't have to be elitist about this. There are so many things that we do in our lives to feel better. I don't think. Uh, meditation or contemplative practices to feel better, I don't think that's, that's uh, unworthy. It, it's what you do if you're not Bahia until you get the joke. And even after you have gotten the joke, you might still do those interventions. I certainly do. And I think I get the joke from time to time. Yeah. Um, I just want to run this by you. It's just occurring to me. Um, sometimes I feel like the cosmic joke is just another way to describe extreme acceptance, extreme equanimity, just, hey, stop resisting or thinking there's anything else but now, because really there isn't. And there's a kind of um, letting go of any struggle for there to be anything else but the now and realizing that all your worries, sorrows, and cares are happening in some past or future moment, and that in this feeling of letting go, is a, is, that's why sometimes it's called a joke or the cosmic giggle, because there's a kind of ridiculousness in it, especially the first time you notice it. It's like, oh my God, you're kidding. All that struggle, all that worry, all that care... It was all to avoid this, which is just the now. Yes. Shinzen's always talking about how the three components of meditation are concentration, sensory clarity, and equanimity. And I like that formulation. It's very good for teaching the Connor type techniques. But upon reflection, I always come back, and he doesn't, I don't think he says this, maybe he does, but. Uh, at least my take on it, is that of those three, if you just had the equanimity or what I like to call acceptance piece, you kind of got it all. Yeah, I like that. I like that because we can because we can plug that into the to the joke about this is it and then the parenthetical qualification. And uh, so I can say, this is it, but only if I have equanimity you know, the, in the list. And, I mean, we can we can take it as far as we want. We can plug anything in there. We can say, this is it, but only if I have equanimity. Right, which is not exactly the way I mean it, and I think you know that. I do know that, but I want you to unpack that. Again, that would be putting it into the future, some imaginary other time or an experience you had in the past where, you know, you did have equanimity. And so now it's not the cosmic joke anymore. You're just back to Connor, which again, there's nothing wrong with Connor. In fact, there's kind of everything right about it, except that it's not as available as just, hey, this is it. Yes. Stop looking to even be equanimous. I'd like to tell a, I'd like to tell a, a story about my own past uh, as a way of illustrating how easy it is to lose the joke, even if you, if you get it for a moment. In about '92, I was I was in a Burmese-style meditation center in Malaysia, 
and meditating intensively for, um, this was as part of a one-year retreat, half in Burma and half in Malaysia. And I'd been meditating for, I think, three months already in, in Malaysia at that time, nonstop. And I got stream entry. I mean, I, I knew it was stream entry. It was obvious to me certain changes happened. Um, kind of a yogic attainment stream entry as described by uh, Mahasi Sayadaw in his writings. Um, all right, so I knew I had stream entry, but the day, and it was all amazing, you know, um, I just walked around laughing for a couple of days. But but the very day of, or perhaps the next day, I remember walking outside in the sun, waiting, I was about to go stand in the lunch line, um, and I was walking to myself, and I, and I spontaneously came up with this exercise. I just started saying to myself, see how it walks, see how it See how it thinks. See how it thinks it's funny. See how it uh, it introspects. And after just a few seconds of that, I was wowed by this insight. Oh, it doesn't matter if I'm born a hundred million times into suffering. This is just as it is. Right. Interesting. This is an, an incredibly powerful to me at the time. Uh, totally got the was, I totally got the joke. Of course, I immediately forgot the joke, and I suppose equated it with some kind of attainment. Uh, oh well, I I need to practice more. I need to become a meditation master so that I can understand that again. And besides, I know I'm only a stream enterer, which in the system I'm working within, it's only the first of four paths. And so, uh, I don't know. I'm I, I got to stay the course. I've got to get the fourth one. Well, it does make sense based on your experience, right? You had gotten stream entry and then after that gotten the joke. So, oh, if I want to get the joke more, I better do some more practice. Yeah, there's a certain there's a certain plausibility to that. Um, and as it happened, I, I did I was very committed to that system, so I, I kept on practicing for for another many years. Um, and then at a certain point, uh, about 2004, I was convinced to my own satisfaction that I had gotten to fourth path within that system. And in the moment of feeling that I had attained that, what happened was I got the joke again. Oh, well, this is, this is just what it is. I don't, I don't have to work to, to become um, enlightened. I could just be enlightened. So I got the joke again. Since then, many times I've, I've I've forgotten the joke. I've signed up for another thing that I had to learn or attempt to master. And why would I do that? Well, because whatever attainment I had did not result in a permanent uh, cessation of suffering. Permanent joke getting. Right. It didn't result in that. But more and more lately, what's happened is the joke becomes the most important thing to me. It doesn't serve to continue to chase attainments, lapel pins and different colored belts to wear around my waist. It's never going to result in owning enlightenment. That's not how this works. Enlightenment doesn't get to be the one thing that's immune to impermanence. But I thought the whole definition of Nibbana was that it was outside of impermanence and no self and suffering. It totally is, if the definition of Nibbana is lights out. 
but but I won't be there to appreciate it. So more and more, I value the joke. Now, I, I love doing these practices and, and training the mind and gaining whatever degree of mastery I can and triangulating from all the various different kinds of interventions to get a more robust kind of development and mastery and so on. But what I value most is getting the joke because the rest of it is only always a momentary intervention. Yeah, I also find myself um, intrigued by things that in some systems would be considered a sideshow, you know, some kind of um, ability or skill that's not exactly awakening, but comes along as part of the package and you can develop it quite a bit or in other traditions might actually be part of awakening. But either way, they're not often directly about cessation of suffering. It can be, they can have other interesting properties. So sure, that's cool. That's fun and interesting, just like it's fun and interesting to learn to play the piano or ride a motorcycle or whatever. There's nothing wrong with that. And in fact, uh, there's everything right if it's helping you to do whatever you want to do in life more effectively. But again, that doesn't mean it's it's cosmic giggle time. Yeah, right. So it's not either or. It's not it's not bitter, bitter and cynical. Oh, I I can't get the joke, so I shouldn't train. Well, that's like saying I can't dunk a basketball, so I shouldn't try to be physically fit. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Right, and that's what I mean. There there have been times where um, being presented with the cosmic giggle by someone has felt to me like like really cynical, you know, or at least uh, cruel to me, you know, like mm-hmm. stop making it so mind fucky, you know, <laughs> like give me something to do. And of course, that's not what they were doing at all, but <laughs> they were trying to point directly to it. Wow. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. But it, it, it can feel tre- tremendously unpleasant. Yeah, and I, and I would say that that's why when I met my my uh, first and, and main Buddhist teacher, Bill Hamilton, in 1990, that's why I was so gratified to, to meet him and to hear what he was saying, because he wasn't mind-fucking me like all the Zen guys I was reading about in books. You know, I, I, could, I could get that it was kind of cute that, that a Zen guy in a cave would hit you with a stick rather than explain anything to you. It's very um, romantic, but I couldn't do anything with that. So when I met Bill and he said, okay, well, we got a program. We're going to sign you up and you're going to move through these four paths and these 16 insight knowledges and um, systematically build skills that will result in your enlightenment. I said, oh, thank you. That's exactly what I want to do. Now, the double-edged sword was maybe if he'd hit me with a stick I would have gotten the joke sooner, but it's water <laughs> under the bridge now. Or not, you know. <laughs> there is something um, just about the Zen version of getting the joke, which is, it's romantic, it's poetic, it's hilarious on some level. The stories are delightful, almost like Nasruddin stories, you know, they just have this kind of irony and beauty to them. Uh, but especially for people raised in a modern technological society who are used to thinking in a linear, rational way and achieving things in a linear, rational way, uh, it just seems 
deeply wrong on some level, like, or if not wrong, like that's funny. Or as you say it, Kenneth, that's cute, but there's really no way for me to engage with that. Right. There's no way for me to engage with that. I can appreciate it, but it's not helping me. And of course, as you said, you know, engaging with that is exactly what you need. You know, it might even be uh, faster. Uh, So nothing against those techniques. In fact, I love that stuff. But I think it's no coincidence that the, the Buddhist form of awakening training that is the most linear and rational and has steps and stages that are all explained in a linear, rational way is the one that has become the most popular in um, the industrial westernized countries. Yes, we are just trained and enculturated to be able to appreciate the the step-by-step nature of that. Yeah, it resonates with all our training and expectations and all the other things we've done that, quote, worked. Okay, well, let's um, uh, wrap this around to Connor for a moment. Okay, so let's wrap this up. Bring it back around, as you say, to Connor. So to review, uh, Connor is a a mnemonic device, C-O-N-R, that you can remember because uh, the, the, the Terminator was trying to kill Sarah Connor, and the Terminator was an AI. And so we're riffing off of Thomas Metzinger's uh, four necessary preconditions for suffering, which are C, consciousness, O, ownership, N, negative valence, and R, realness, all of which have to be happening at the same time in order to suffer, which means that if even one of those is suspended in any moment, and we're talking about momentary suspensions, one wouldn't suffer. And there's there's a whole raft of traditional interventions that target one or more of those necessary preconditions for suffering. So Connor is how to remember it. And Connor is what you do If getting the cosmic joke is pissing you off and it doesn't make any sense to you, and then once in a while you might reflect on, could it really be anything other than this? Well, thanks for the whole uh, Connor teaching, Kenneth. And also, you know, anything related to Thomas Metzinger, Thomas Metzinger, I really enjoy. He's a great guy. I love his books, Being No One and The Ego Tunnel. There's a lot of great information in there that I think is quite helpful, actually, to meditators. So uh, run out and get Thomas's books. Hi, Thomas. And uh, Kenneth, I look forward to speaking with you again, I hope, relatively soon. Me too, Michael. Always a pleasure. Uh, And thanks to Thomas Metzinger for the great ideas. All right, Kenneth. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat with me this summer in Costa Rica. From August 3rd to the 10th, we will come together to focus on non-dual meditation practice with a particular theme of embodiment of awakening in meditation and in life. For seven days, I'll be giving non-dual meditation teachings, practices, and guided meditations 
as well as personal meditation instruction to each member of the group. The retreat will be hosted at the Blue Spirit Retreat Center, located in the Nosara region of Costa Rica's Pacific Coast. The retreat center is perched on a hilltop overlooking the ocean and a three-mile white sand beach that is a protected turtle refuge. The pristine nature, subtropical climate, and members of the Deconstructing Yourself Sangha will create a unique environment for your meditation retreat. If you're interested, check out deconstructingyourself.org where there's a link to the information page. I look forward to seeing you there. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct You. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash sign up or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.